0: Does anyone have a stopwatch? Can you can you use your phone as a stopwatch? Okay. I would like to... Um, I would like you to time something for me. After everybody gets started here. But when I tell you go and then stop, I want to see how long it takes me to read chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. So... I'm going to read our text without any comment uh, on it. If I can uh, scooch over here, then the screen doesn't have reflection on it. So. So are we recording, Joe? All right. So let's start the timer. The Revelation from Jesus Christ John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, both what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Timer off. So 3.5. Multiply 3.5 times 21. What do you get? 63. 73.5. So if we were to read at that pace the entire book of Revelation, it would take us an hour and 20 minutes, right? Something like that. All right, I needed to know that because I'm going to ask you to stay late next week. <laughs> <laughs> I am persuaded by that phrase, blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this testimony, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart um, for these are things that will soon be, or will happen soon, that uh, I think there's a blessing for us, and I've never heard the whole book at once, and I, well, the first time it was issued to the churches, they didn't have a clock on the wall, and they got a letter from John on Patmos, and they read the whole thing, and somebody read it out loud to the whole group, and so I think there might be some real benefit. So, Perhaps in a couple weeks, next week is our birthday bonanza, but in a couple weeks we'll have a, a time where we just listen to, I mean we have different people to read different parts, but we'll listen to the whole thing at once. At least once I'd like to try that. So anyway, that's a goal. All right, the end of the book, Revelation 22, ends like this. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everything, everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, and the sexually immoral, and the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let those who hear say, Come. Let those who are thirsty come, and let all who wish to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If any one of you adds anything to them, God will add to you the plagues described in this scroll. And if any one of you takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from you your share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon amen come lord jesus the grace of the lord jesus be with god's people amen so that's the end of the book of revelation pretty neat huh pretty powerful stuff so tonight i wanted to just try to cover these five things if possible and the first one is why are we expecting or what are we expecting from this study i just wanted to give you all an opportunity If you were going to go to a study on the book of Romans, what would be some of the things that you would hope to get from it? Romans or Revelation? Do I say, I said Romans, didn't I? I, I've talked too fast these days, but it's Revelation. Thank you. The first uh, verse kind of says what he's making, like, uh, which God gave him, Revelation of Jesus Christ,
1: which God gave him to show
0: the servants what must soon take place. Yeah. So the very first verse is the revelation that God gave to Jesus, gave him to show his servants what will soon take place. So so Marie, I think you're answering my question, is you're expecting to hear what's going to soon take place, right? Okay. What else might a person be expecting from the book of, it might not be you, but if you were going to publish, hey, come to the church, we're going to do a study on Revelation, what would be some of the things that people might expect? Eschatology is that we said. Yep, the study of future events. What other kinds of things would people expect? I, think I found another place where it doesn't reflect. Definition, Def, definition of better understanding. Better understanding. I, it's a confusing book, right? I really wish I knew what it meant. It's so, sort of true. Yeah, that would be a neat expectation. What other expectations might some people have? you ever heard of uh, end times bingo right? trying to fill in the slot who's the antichrist and where is this country and who's going to do that where does America fit in And you know I think a lot of times people come to the book of Revelation trying to almost view it like a um, in the same way that people are attracted to um, those things in the newspaper what are they called horoscopes right you are trying to find something because we have a natural curiosity about the future and what's gonna to happen to us and somehow there somehow if I knew that this river was that river in the book of Revelation or this city was that that somehow I would feel more in control or less afraid or I don't know why I think I if I knew the future would help me, but I, I, I think people are attracted to that. There's a lot of people are fascinated by revelation, right? It's fascinating. Glenn Yeah, sometimes revelation frightens us because we come with so many expectations and they're unmet, right? Or it gets bogged down in the details or it gets bogged down in opinions and people start arguing, well, yeah, but Daniel 7 says this and the 70th week is that. And you know, and 1 Thessalonians said that. And, and I feel like there's a lot of contention around it sometimes. But somebody, Becky, did you ever hand up?
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. And I don't even have enough information and an opinion. And so
0: it's just confusing and discouraging. Yeah, it can be discouraging because it feels like you've entered into an argument between experts that you don't even know what they're talking about. It just feels kind of inconsequential as to what, you know. What they're arguing about, yes. Yeah, it's irritate- it feels irritating to me sometimes because people also approach it with so much confidence and dogma that they know exactly what it means. And that's what sells books and, and gets big audiences is to act like you know exactly what it means. That in my experience has been, remember Jack Van Impey in the 70s, right? I mean, he knew everything. And so we all wanted to go. Did you, Larry?
1: Yeah. I think it says it in the first five words: the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Is the Majesty, the Judgment? It is who Christ yeah. is. Yeah. As the future. Yeah. It's it's him.
0: Yeah. It's so it's Christ all about Jesus. It's and all about Jesus. I agree, and I think it's especially exciting to think it's the revelation of Jesus that God gave to him, so he was given permission to share this with the saints. God gave it to Jesus to tell us what will soon take place. So it is a predictive book. That's what the very first sentence says. But it's a predictive book that God gave Jesus to give to John, and he does it by sending his angel to John, but he gives it as a gift to his church for our benefit. And so it's a good, so as scared as a, of it as we are, and as impossible as it feels to really unravel it, it's for our benefit. Every word is for our benefit. I mean, at the end, John says, don't take any parts out and don't add any parts. This is exactly right. So that's an important study. Yes, uh, Phil. Yeah. To support them Yeah. You know? And you know, I, I don't claim to be a Bible scholar, but you know, it, a part of me says, Well, somebody's gotta be <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what Phil said is that all the different the competing views of eschatology, pre trib, a trib, mid trib, premillennial, amillennial, they all use the same text to support their arguments and it, it does get uh frustrating and Discouraging, yes, uh, Barb. I tried to it you tried to outline it before. Like outline. Yes, like it, it, it kind of defies an outline, doesn't it? Does. Yeah. It, you, you want? I've seen charts. I've seen very big, like, twenty-foot charts trying to understand it, and the seven somethings, trumpets that turn into seven bowls and then the seventh bowl, is a, and it just feels like an ever-expanding, exploding universe of topics. And then all of a sudden, all these things he sees, is he telling the same story over again? as a different way of looking at it. Is he telling the whole story of history or is he telling a new part of this? It's just, there's a lot of interpretive dilemmas. And again, I want to say that it starts right out by saying it's a blessing to hear it and take it to heart. So, as scary as it is, we ought not be afraid of it, even if we can't understand it all. So, I think those are good points. Does someone else have any? Becky. Uh, I also want to share uh, my some baggage, maybe. Baggage, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I remember someone saying that someone I mean, I don't know who or whatever, but someone told me that they're they're gonna put a gun to your head and they're gonna say, Do you believe in Jesus or not? And if you don't, if you don't think you can do that and say, I believe in Jesus with a gun to your head, then you're probably not a Christian. And I'm a little girl, <laughs> you know, I shouldn't even be picturing a gun on my head. And I think that we can categorize the whole book. that's just, I just felt like there was a lot of teaching about scary future events that I was going to experience. And outside of that teaching, my life wasn't terrifying, you know? And so it just felt like it it was not, I don't think that was right, that we would come to to Sunday school and be terrified instead of saying, hey, Jesus is with you.
0: Jesus is going to, I was being led to
1: vision of future that didn't have the grace of Jesus and the presence of Jesus enabling me to endure the scary things that might
0: come in my life. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, For all of these good comments, I should have had the mic for you for our podcast. But just to sum up, Becky was saying that as a very young person, the way that Revelation was explained or taught to her actually kind of traumatized her to have... Well, sorry. You I'm didn't, okay. You didn't use that word. You don't have PTSD. But it was used in a way that, in your young mind, was very frightening. And you, you saw a graceless, godless kind of future. With, because evil is described in such horrid, gory details that it feels like evil is in charge. And so the whole book of Revelation, in general, gives you this impression of an impending—it's a, it's a horror movie— right? It's like, and the bad guy's winning, and it's just really scary in the middle. Yeah, it's what it feels like, which I, I, I think that might be wrong, right? That might be wrong for us to view it that way. Any other comments? Or Donna? Donna? Okay, so there was a time when it was sensational, yeah, yeah, it was really popular. And it was scary, I didn't like it because that, like, you have any minute. Scary, and any, it, grow up, any minute it could happen, yeah. to grow up not in the world. Right, right, yeah. Trying to make every every word fit something in our world today. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like a huge distraction that way. You know, nailing down which brand of helicopter the locusts are, and you know, all Magog and Gog is the northern kingdoms of Russia, and so then every time Russia did anything, it was always. <gasps> This is revelation coming true or, you know, it's, it's, that's what, I remember that. Did I catch everything? I, I'm not, I don't mean to speak over you. I'm trying to repeat you to the microphone. And, and I guess just that it became an obsession that we placed the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Yeah. And being concerned with what are we going to do with the gospel? What are we going to do with our lives right now while we're waiting? Right. The, uh, it became an obsession that would distract us from what we're supposed to be doing right now and and distracting us from the body of the whole Bible. Yeah. Uh, Sue, you wanted to say something? I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So she was saying that she was expecting, based on my style of teaching, that we would be encouraged by what Jesus is doing in our lives, and that this would be a blessing to the readers, not a cause for nightmares. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your. You feel a lot of the same things I do, and I. I also want to say I feel a little bit of the same anxiety that I did with the series on the gospel and politics. In the sense that I'm afraid we're going to come across a third rail issue that we're going to feel really strongly about and disagree, and so I I don't want to be afraid because I trust you. And so let's agree in advance to disagree kindly if we do disagree, right? If we come across something, this has to be the this has to be a reference to the uh, the rapture or not, right? So we don't have to. Well, um, thank you for that brainstorm and, and again for uh, confirming I'm feeling a lot of the same things. So, uh, So that was what we discussed. My second point is I think that I want to submit to you that what I see as the purposes of the book are fourfold, I think. First of all, it says right away that this is to show us what will soon take place. And I think well, let me read it, verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Right, so there is a predictive component of this. It was for the believers in that day to know about some things that were going to happen. Now, whether or not those things have happened, Or are still going to happen in the future? Or the third option is that they've happened in part already, but they're going to happen double in the future. I don't really know the answer. All I know is that from the beginning, the purpose was to tell us about things that were right on the horizon, whatever that means. Now, we all know that God's timeline is infinite. So what looks like a long time to us might not be as long. So it's hard to know. Is he saying, when he says what must soon take place, is he talking about by the end of the century or is he talking about the end of that age? I don't know, but there's a predictive component, right? So one of the purposes of the book is to tell us about something that hasn't happened yet. So there is a future component, right? The second purpose I see, though, is to show us what is going on now. There's some revelation about how we're supposed to view the world as it already is playing out right now. Again, at verse 17, when I saw him, that's when John saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he placed his right hand on me and said, this is all chapter one, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so Jesus is speaking to John, and he says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, both what is now and what will take place later. So part of what Jesus is telling John to write is already true, and part of it is going to take place later. Joel. Yes. And so I appreciate you highlighting what is not. Yeah, there, Jesus is interpreting the world at that time too, right? He's telling John, "I'm telling you what's going on right now," and at least it means, at least it's demonstrated in his letters to the churches, right? It's what's going on, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, you know those churches. So, so I think that's good. So the the I'm gonna again I'm asserting. That the book is telling us in chapter 1 that what it's for is to tell us what's going to take place. It's telling us how to interpret what's going on right now. And then I also want to say that the part of the book is to encourage us to be victorious. Every one of the letters to the churches says something like this. Whoever has ears to hear, this is to the church at Ephesus, the first one. In chapter 2, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, or in the older translation, to those who overcome, to those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then to the next church, he says, if you're victorious, I'm going to give you this. And in the next church, if you're victorious. So there's this repeated seven times with seven churches. I think he says it all seven times. There's. I want you to be victorious. I want you to overcome. Like Jesus said be, to the disciples in the upper room, I have overcome the world. You can overcome the world. And so part of the purpose is to equip us to overcome. I am encouraged to think that by knowing Revelation better, I'll be more victorious in my Christian life. I think that's what the book is promising me. And then another purpose then is to call us to patiently endure. Again, this is going to bump into some eschatology because some people are going to say, and I have always believed, that the rapture takes us out before the worst parts of the Great Tribulation. So the good news is that we don't have to go through the earth's horrible experience. But if that's entirely true then why does in the middle of the book, multiple times, it says things, for example, here's one example. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. And then this calls, this truth that John just wrote from the scroll This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Now my strict eschatology would say there ain't no God's people on earth during this time. But who is this talking to then? Unless this is some parenthetical statement way. Please don't get distracted by my eschatology. I'm just showing you that the text says this calls for patient endurance. And there's multiple places where it does so. Here's another place in chapter 14. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. And So there's a blessing for believers who die in the Lord after that time. All I I just want to say that I think the book is supposed to make me brave enough to patiently endure. Do you follow? I'm using the words that John has written. So there could be other purposes, but at least it's to give me my knowledge of what's going to happen, my knowledge of how to interpret what's going on now, courage to be victorious and courage to be enduring. Okay. So I'm submitting that for your consideration. All right, so then the third question is, what is the blessing of this book? In, when Jesus, in verse 3, John writes, I don't know if this is Jesus speaking, I think it's John's writing, because it's right after he said the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ, that, you know, that God gave him to I tell his servants. He, he sent it by uh, sending his angel to, to John to write down what he wrote and heard. And then he says in verse three, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So that's why I want to read it out loud for a whole a whole hour and a half. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. And look at what the blessing is, or why why does he he argues there's a blessing, and his argument is because the time is near. It's a blessing because the time is near. And so it's good to know that God's in charge of what's going on when the time is near. So, minimally, I think the blessing in the book is that we get to see who Jesus is. I was going to ask you guys who the blessings might be, but we're running out of time. But I read the statement that there is a blessing for reading and listening. What might those blessings contain? One of them is seeing who Jesus is, right? Right? The one that, I, that we read about how um, he told them to write and then they turned and saw the voice and, and how he was, uh, you know, like a son of man, robed down to his feet, golden sash around his chest. His hair was like wool white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. So this describes the Lord Jesus and his glory and power, similar in some ways to the transfiguration, right? His face was shining all his brilliance. That's the same way Jesus looked on the mountain of transfiguration. He, he was so bright. And the coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. You realize that probably wasn't metal, right? It's a picture described the effect of his word. So that's introducing another thing. But anyway, um, so one of the blessings is we get to see Jesus. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look. I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Uh, Just as an aside here, I think it's really interesting that Jesus rejoices and brags to John, look at me. I was dead once. You know, I rose from the dead. I am the living one. It's a big deal that Jesus died and rose from the dead, and he is most Uh, unashamed about it. So I think that's pretty neat. So one of the blessings of the book is at least we're going to see who Jesus is, what he's like. Another big blessing is I think we're going to see how important we are to Jesus. We really matter to God. This is not just, I mean, the creator God has the power and the right to do whatever he wants with this creation. And you know, we can mess things up on earth. You know, we can cause a forest fire. Or we can, I don't know, we can cause a big mess, but we can't cause nearly the mess that the creator could cause if he wanted to, right? I mean, he's the one who made mountains and he holds the mountains in his hands like the dust. And, you know, he treats them like, I mean, he could go like this with his finger and wipe out Australia and just sink it, right? I mean, he could do whatever he wants. So the creator is really powerful. But in in the midst of all of his super huge God-like omnipotent power, we matter to him. And again, to all seven churches, he said, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. This is the one to, to Ephesus. But the other churches, I know what you're doing. I know where you live. I know, how you're, I know how it's going. And so I think that we see not only how wonderful Jesus is, we get to see how much he cares for us. And so this whole content of this book is at least in part for our benefit because he loves us that much. So one of the blessings is that we get to see who Jesus is. Another blessing is we get to see how important we are to Jesus. Another one is we get to see how God will judge the wicked. It matters for justice that God does judge the wicked. In Revelation 6, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord? These are the martyrs holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And so these saints who are gathered in heaven and they're asking God, how long until you avenge? Not because they're vengeful in their hearts, but because justice needs to be made. And it was unjust to be, to be killed for the name of Jesus. It was a horrible thing. And, and so we need judgment in order for justice to prevail. What good is what good is a God who is holy and yet will not hold his creatures accountable? And so it's good that there's a judgment. And then later in Revelation 14, I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. Remember, we always say, wouldn't it be great if God would write the gospel in heaven so that people would believe it was true? How about if we have an angel it out? Maybe they'll believe that. Looks like it happens here, Right? The, he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So this angel is broadcasting the gospel on the heaven network, whatever, written on the sky. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Do you not see the vindication of our great God, right? He deserves to be worshipped because he made it all. How dare we rebel against him? And the voice says, fear God. Fear God and treat him like he's important. Give him glory. And so somehow seeing God's judging the world is a blessing for us. But then ultimately... Seeing how God will restore all things for those who are in Jesus. That's exciting too. Because no matter how we get from chapter 1 to chapter 19, chapter 19, 20, and 21 actually are there. And that's really awesome stuff to see how God restores it all. Look at this little section from 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor mourning, or crying, or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God wants us to know he's going to make everything new. I think that's a blessing. So those are some of the things that I think might be blessings. And if we had time, I'm sure you could add to that list too. So what are the challenges of this book? I'm sure you can come up with them, but I got a few here. It's apocalyptic literature. That just means it's of its own kind. Like proverbs is a different kind of literature. The story of Joseph and going down to Egypt—that's a narrative. That's a different kind of literature. The Psalms are poems, so they're they're very um, imaginary, and not in the sense of being fake, but very. Uh, you use your imagination, right? God's right arm protects us, he's like a hen covering his chicks, you know, the arm of the Lord is not short. It's not that God has an arm, it's that it's, it's a, it, we imagine the strength of an arm, right? And so, but apocalyptic literature is its own category of super crazy, uh, almost impossible, seemingly, if not literally, impossible images. And other examples are Daniel 7 and... Um, Ezekiel chapter 1, remember the wheel inside of a wheel when God was moving around the earth. There's, so there's apocalyptic literature that has this. And here's, here's an example out of Revelation. I, whoops. Uh, clicked the wrong button. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet. Uh, okay, I'm going to follow this. This is a, this is a crazy image. This is like a nightmare picture or a dream picture. A crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. 12 stars? Israel? Okay, maybe. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 hordes and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And then the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment he was born. So I can imagine this horrendous, scary thing, but this is so uh, outside of this creation, fantastic. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Who's that? Right, Isaiah, right? He will... Unto you a child is born, son is given, he'll rule the nations with iron and scepter. I mean, that's the Messiah. And her child was snatched up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So that's just, a, that's a classic example of apocalyptic literature that has meaning, but maybe not like, okay, now that I know that Satan is red and has seven heads now my life, that's not the part that's the meaning part. The image carries the meaning, not the isn't the end in itself. And you have to understand that about apocalyptic literature because if you try to say, oh, I always interpret the Bible literally, you got to be careful how we use that term, right? Because when Jesus says, I am the door, to the sheep, I'm the door. Does that mean Jesus is a six-panel door with windows or is he made out of wood? That's To say it literally or metaphorically, it's fine for Jesus to say, I'm a door, I'm the door, in what the door does, not in what the door is made out of. Right? It's, it's, an, it's a simile, a metaphor. Apocalyptic literature takes fantastic images that we would love to make all the meaning fit somewhere, But it might not be anything other than just saying, hey, there's been a cosmic battle between Israel and Satan because of the Messiah, the seed who is going to crush his head. And he wants to destroy it, and he can't. God rescues him. And so he turns and attacks the woman. That's the story of history, actually. That's the whole story of Israel's life. And so maybe that's all it is, is just a fantastic, artistic artsy way of, you understand what I'm saying? That's one of the challenges of Revelation is you you've got to wade through this kind of apocalyptic content and recognize it as it's a different kind of material. It's not the same as for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's not like Paul's long sentence in Ephesians, right? It's a different kind of literature. The other thing that's a difficult challenge is How do you discern what's historical versus contemporary meaning? In other words, what would it have meant to the people in the church of Ephesus in the year 70, or maybe if this was written in 60 AD, what would it have meant to them the first time they heard it versus what does it mean to us today living in 2024 with a whole lot smaller world communication-wise, but a whole lot bigger world geographically than they had. And so how do you compare those meanings? And I've heard it said before, something like this, it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for those who first received it. You think that's a true statement? I don't want to start an argument, but... I've heard scholars say that the text, the book of Revelation can't mean something for us in 2024 that it couldn't have also meant for someone in 60 AD. And so if the locusts that sting you for five months is a reference to an Apache helicopter, it can't be because the people in 60 AD had no such concept as an Apache helicopter, therefore It can't mean that. If you follow this rule, it does make the road a lot safer, right? Because now I don't have to try to figure out how does the internet play in and how does uh, AI and, uh, you know, I don't have to try to contemporary, contemporize all of the predictions. But I'm not so sure that this statement is for sure always true. Because first of all, I've never read it in the Bible. It doesn't ever say that. And actually, I found this passage in the Bible that kind of contradicts it. In First Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, concerning this salvation, he just talked about Jesus, he says, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, that would be Peter's audience, the prophets, that would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, the guys in the olden days, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ was in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 51, I saw this one, uh, the one that we esteemed him not, right? And he was on the cross and He died. They couldn't figure out how can the Messiah? We thought the Messiah was going to come and be the king and the victor, but how does this one also come and suffer? And they tried really hard to figure that out, and they never really did. As a matter of fact, even Jesus' disciples couldn't figure it out until after he died, right? Because they were so persuaded that he was going to set up the kingdom. Now they even asked who was going to be right hand and left hand. I mean, they expected it to happen politically. And they didn't get it. And so what Peter is saying is that, the, that it is possible, I want to argue, that Peter's saying that the prophets who predicted the first coming of Jesus couldn't figure out what they were writing. It didn't make sense to them. But it's revealed to us, right? It's revealed to us. It was revealed to them, according to Peter, that they were not serving themselves but you. So they wrote things for the future that when we got there we got to interpret it. And they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels longing to look into these things. And so there's no excuse to not understand who Jesus is anymore. But there sure was a confusion before. And there wasn't an answer. And I want to say that maybe that's how revelation functions. That maybe There's stuff in it that we don't get to know unless we're there, unless it happens. Then the lights will go on and say, oh, now I know what the 1260 days is. But for us, all we can do is join the prophets and try really hard. But maybe it's not for us. I just want to submit that possibility. Becky, you had a comment. Yeah. It could also be that whether or not you understand it in the past what is true was still true and yes. f- so if something if there is an instruction to patiently endure for yes. example, right. to the ancient audience that is also an instruction for us granted so so don't i'm glad for that clarification you're bouncing when I said the prophets tried really hard to figure out what the Bible was saying about Jesus just because they couldn't figure out everything about it doesn 't mean they didn't know that it was still saved by grace and that there was one who would pay the price if for and Isaiah wrote by his stripes, we are healed by you know by his so his, so they they knew the content of the gospel they couldn't figure out the like Peter says, right? They couldn't find out the time and the circumstances. They couldn't figure out that part, but they knew the gospel enough to be saved, enough to but say that, yeah. Still have some utility. Like, yes, they, sometimes it. People say, okay. Or understand Revelation. Yeah. as This puzzle. Uh, okay. That you can figure so, out yeah. And therefore, would mean nothing. Right. So just because we can't necessarily find out the time and circumstances doesn't mean that there isn't much value still in reading the book and trying. Angels try to figure it out. (coughs) So I think that's a really good balancing thing. And that's when I will go all the way back to my point here is that one of the challenges is for us to admit humbly that we might not be able to figure it all out. Maybe. And so don't say unless Ephesus knew we can't, then that can't be the answer. That's not necessarily valid either, right? So we just have to be humble about it. Phil, you have a comment. The imagery, yeah, the woman and Satan, yeah. Some of that imagery to them might have gone past them a bit. Yeah. They all understood their conflict between being God's chosen and that Satan's attitude as well. There you go. So even though the imagery of that apocalyptic literature, the woman and stuff, the imagery goes beyond them. And maybe even some of the stuff that John saw was things like helicopters that he could not comprehend. But the core meaning was still there, that there was a conflict between God and the seed of the woman, and therefore Satan takes it out on the woman. Yeah, that's all. So that sometimes the plain things are the main things, and we maybe shouldn't be distracted by the other parts. All right, we need to keep going. I'm running. Um, the, other, the third challenge is that we have sometimes an interpretive bias. I want it to be pre-trib, okay? Because if it's not, then I have to unravel too much of my history, <laughs> right? And so I just need to be willing to be open-minded to that I might not be right. And so um, just be careful about coming to the text with a bias let it talk don't bring our own bias prejudice all right so real quickly uh, if you want to write them down my goals for our study is that we would have ears to hear jesus that we would be blessed by what we learn together that we would be even more gracious to one another as we learn together right I, i want it to build us up as a church that we would somehow long for Jesus' return even more than we do now. Something about John's perspective. He's, he's on the island of Patmos and he says, amen, let it be. It, you know, come quickly. And then at the end of the book, come Jesus, come quickly. So whatever he saw, John understood it as, man, I want this to happen. I want him to come. So I would want us to long for Jesus' return. And then ultimately that we would better understand the book. Okay? So those are my goals. Thank you for being such a good audience and letting me go over. Um, Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity. Um, Let us take to heart what is written in the words of this prophecy. Because the time is soon. In Jesus' name, amen.